0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to turn with me to First Corinthians chapter ten, which is our text for this morning. We're going to pick up the next section. We're working through this book and this letter, uh, verse by verse, section by section, week by week. And uh, this morning we find ourselves looking at verses fourteen to twenty-two which again is kind of an extension of a larger argument that began all the way back in chapter 8, and uh, we'll continue through to the end of chapter 10. I just want to read the verses for us so that we're familiar with them in, in, uh, in advance of our, of our exposition of them this morning. Paul says this in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, and verse 14, he says, "'Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. "'I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. "'Is not the cup of blessing which we bless?' a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. But look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice— they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, and you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Several months ago, I was watching a movie with, the, with our kids, and the, it's an animated movie, and the There was a scene about halfway through where the main character in the film uh, is trying to escape a perilous situation by furiously banging on a locked door uh, that had trapped this girl in a cave, and it was magically filling up with sand. She was going to be buried alive. And just when all hope seemed lost, with one final push on the door, the lock gives way, and the girl flies out to a rolling stop, much to her relief, having you know narrowly escaped a, a certain untimely demise. and uh, But her relief immediately turned to dread because as she casually looked to her right and the camera pans out, you realize that she has come to rest on the edge of a cliff that is hanging right above this massive canyon, only a few inches further to the right, and uh, and she would most certainly have tumbled to a all- certain death. Now, this fictional scenario captures, I believe, in some ways what's going on in 1 Corinthians as the church writes, as Paul writes to this church in chapters 8, 9, and 10. There's a large faction of the church who had escaped death through their commitment to Christ by grace and through faith, and but in this newly granted freedom that they have, uh, they've come to rest dangerously close to the edge of a, of a precipice as they continue to flirt with idolatry. And um, much like the main character I just described, there's a sense of relief in their present situation. They're, they're forgiven in Christ and they have peace with God. Even more than that, they're proudly confident in themselves and their ability to... Um, navigate life circumstances. But what Paul does for them in these chapters, and particularly in chapter 10, is essentially to pan out and to help them see that their situation is extremely precarious. And rather than continuing to rest on the extreme edge as they are doing, that they should, like the character in the movie did, immediately step back lest they themselves take a step too far and fall. See, the attitude of the Corinthian church as a whole was one of immaturity. We've talked about this as we've studied through the previous chapters. Their attitude was one of arrogance. It was one of prideful presumption upon God's grace in their lives. Their attitude was something along the lines of, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't matter if we dine in an idol's temple, or it doesn't matter if we participate in these feasts, uh, that are offered to these false gods, because we know they're not really gods after all anyway, and um, we belong to Christ, so you know, we're good. And the Corinthians looked at their privileges, they looked at the baptism that they had received, and they looked at their fellowship with Christ in the elements of the Lord's table, and they looked at those things and they thought to themselves, well, it doesn't matter what we do beyond that, you know, we can live how we want. They were holding to a distorted view of Christian freedom, Christian liberty. And Paul continues to call them out for it here in chapter 10. He doesn't do it in, uh, like he does in chapter 8, which is to call out how ethically questionable their position is, or in the same way he does in chapter 9, where he speaks to his personal example and how their lives don't match up with his life and the way that he's conducting himself. In chapter 10, Paul is exposing their Christian freedom as theologically deficient. It's naive. And the net effect of what he says in these verses that really begin to, they gather momentum as you move through chapter 10. The net effect of those things is a prohibition against all manner of idolatry and by implication an exhortation for us to walk closely with the triune God. Idolatry, we said last Sunday, doesn't always involve physical objects. It doesn't always involve um, things made out of wood or stone or carved um, or or, or fashioned out of metal. Any, we said, false idea about God that contradicts his revealed word, any false notion of God believed upon um, and then followed after, Can function as an idol. Idolatry is at its root, just like all sin, a heart issue. It boils down to the heart. Ezekiel, again, just going back to his example and his his confrontation with the leaders of Israel in chapter 14, verse 3, he, he indicts the leaders of Israel for having set up idols, not physically, but in their hearts. And we can do the same. Idolatry is a serious sin, and it is a continual temptation for us and to, and to point out how dangerous it is last Sunday in these opening verses of chapter 10, Paul pointed us to the events of Israel's past as a warning to presume upon our spiritual privileges don't he says don't do that don't make that mistake the opening five verses of chapter 10 were a history lesson a rewinding of the tape if you will of Israel's exodus time and uh, out of Egypt and their wilderness wanderings, and it was a history lesson that 's meant to impart a singular truth to us that though god 's people may enjoy tremendous blessing and tremendous spiritual privilege, that in and of itself doesn 't guarantee that you get to the finish line it doesn 't guarantee a final blessing and The way he goes about uh, rewinding israel 's history for us points out that there is a there 's a god intended parallel. Uh, a correspondence and escalation between the events of the Exodus and Israel's wilderness wanderings and the church's present experience. In other words, Israel's experience through the Exodus event is a type, we said, a promise-shaped pattern that helps us know God better, understand his ways in dealing with his people through human history. A type, we said, always involves a historical correspondence, a historical parallel, and an escalation in that um, parallel in significance that ultimately elevates the importance of the pattern itself in our thinking. We see this in Scripture, this, this correspondence and escalation with respect to people, how Adam is the, is the um, type of the greater man Christ himself. Sometimes we see Scripture uh, make this parallel and escalation with respect, with respect to an institution. We pointed out how um, the sacrificial system under Moses and even marriage the, uh, between a man and a woman, that points to greater spiritual realities of the fellowship we have with God or of Christ's relationship to his church. And sometimes, and this is what we saw last Sunday in the text, uh, scripture, we see this correspondence and escalation with respect to events. And so the the exodus and how God redeems his people from Israel in slavery and how he provides for them through the Mosaic Covenant, all of that points to how God saves his people in all places, in all times. And it, uh, we see this connection. So each new instance of the pattern in an event, in a person, in an institution, it, what it does for us as we read it and we discern it is it, it, it raises our growing... It grow, it, within us, we get a growing sense of significance of those things. And, and this building realization that these persons, events, and institutions, as they kind of break onto the scene of human history, that these things are moving along and pointing to something greater, with respect to God's plan of salvation and how he relates to his people. God ordains the parallels. These are not man's um, contrivances out of the text. God actually did these things in the way that he did these things in time and space. And he providentially ensured that the authors of Scripture would notice those things and the Spirit oversaw the entire process, ensuring that those things were recorded exactly as they needed to be for us on the pages of Scripture. And so typology or the study of types in Scripture is an exercise in discerning the God-ordained patterns, the God-ordained um, correspondences between persons and events and institutions where, where they see them. And, and, and so it helps us understand who God is and how He operates, it helps us to learn the spiritual lessons of those who've gone before us, and that's part of why Paul uses it in chapter ten. And he helps us. It also, I think, types help us look with anticipation. It helps us build. It helps build expectation in our hearts for the one who is working all things after the counsel of His will, because things are moving some some direction, and that direction is a good thing for God's people. And so, the lesson from Israel's past was this, though you're privileged, you may still perish. Even though God has given all, gave Israel all that he gave them, every possible blessing, every possible evidence of his infinite power and goodness, his loving kindness, yet it says in verse 5, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And so he, he says in the same way that God didn't tolerate Israel's idolatry, Paul says to the Corinthians, He will not tolerate your idolatry, and the lesson for us is he will uh, we 're deceiving ourselves if he thinks that he will tolerate our our idolatry. This led into the second lesson we saw in verses six to thirteen and it 's a lesson for the church now, and that is because you are privileged, you must press on again the, the verses six to thirteen are an application of verse. Verses 1 to 5, he says, Now these things happened, in verse 6, as types for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also did. God ordained the, 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 and so wrote things down through the author Moses. To he, he orchestrated things in this promise-shaped pattern for us. It was for our benefit, and the reason is that we would not desire evil things as Israel did. And then he goes on to describe the ways in which they did that. They were idolaters, and they acted immorally, and they tried the Lord, and they grumbled, and they complained. All the things that they desired that God says were the wrong things to desire. And Paul summed it all up in verse 11, reminding them again that the events that took place that he just read about in verses 7 through 10, those events happened for us, for our benefit. Christ's coming is significant, and it teaches us that we are not to desire evil things as they did. As verse 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We should never presume on our spiritual privileges. We should never think that just because we go to church or just because we grew up in a Christian home or just because we made a profession of faith at some point in our lives in the past, that in and of itself is not a guarantee of final blessing. The question is, are you trusting in Christ now? Are you walking with Christ now? Faith works. And so Paul says, don't presume on your privileges. But in typical fashion, we said he doesn't end with a word of warning. He ends with a word of encouragement in verse 13. And he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. His word to them and his word to us is there is no risk of falling as long as you're fighting the good fight of faith. And that is where we need to end a, a, a passage of warning like that. Trials and temptations, those are inevitable. They are coming on you no matter what. But we can be confident that God is unswervingly faithful to his children. He is trustworthy. He will provide the help that we need. So, the second lesson for the church, we said, is because you and I are privileged, because we have the Spirit within us, because God can and has sovereignly orchestrated all the events of human history exactly as He has into these promise shaped patterns over thousands of years, He can be trusted that He will provide the way of escape, and we must press on toward that goal. We must press on toward the prize, lest we come to the end of our lives, as Paul said at the end of chapter 9, and disqualify ourselves. Well, that brings us to the threshold of our text this morning. And in verses 14 to 22, Paul shows us that flirtation with idolatry is not simply a casual matter of Christian freedom, but rather a forsaking of fellowship with Christ and a failure in faithfulness to Christ. Idolatry, I'll say that again, is not simply a matter of Christian freedom, but a forsaking of fellowship with Christ and a failure in faithfulness to Christ. See, they were saying, and this has been their issue all along in chapters 8 and 9 as well, here in chapter 10, they were saying to their fellow Christians, an idol's not a real thing, right? And so it doesn't matter what we eat, it doesn't matter where we eat, you know, and you shouldn't be concerned about those things either. And they're encouraging them to kind of to participate in those things, even against their conscience. And they also were saying, and we gathered this from the previous section, that, that they were looking to their baptism and the Lord's table as if those things had some kind of magical power that over, you know, sort of overruled uh, all their behavior and all their um, conduct you know, outside of those events. And Paul's going to show them just how naive, theologically naive, that approach to Christian discipleship is. And so we're going to break the text down into just four simple parts this morning. We'll see the command in verse 14. We'll see the consideration in verses 15 to 18. We'll see the clarification in verse 19 and the beginning part of verse 20. And then at the end from 20 to 22, we will see a call to singular devotion. That's our outline for this morning. We begin, though, in verse 14, and Paul gives us the command. We already saw this last Sunday. He gives the summary command, and we should take it to heart. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. This brings the argument of verses 1 to 13 to its only possible conclusion. But he does that with a warm appeal and a strict prohibition. They're both here. This command, and particularly the way Paul phrases it, is an appropriate one to fall on the heels of verse 12 and the word of comfort in verse 13. He says God will provide a way of escape in life's trials. He assures them, though, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters, you can expect divine aid in all of life's trials, in all of life's temptations. That will be there for you. There is no danger of falling. God is faithful. But that is not the case when it comes to willful pursuit of idolatry. The way out of sin, particularly idolatry, is to flee from it. To flee from it. And this is a good reminder for us when it comes to idolatry, but really any any category of sin. Notice Paul doesn't simply say, be careful with your idolatry he doesn't say he doesn't say um, uh, watch out for that he says flee from it flee from it i mean if you were if you were being chased by a murderous psychopath you wouldn't you you wouldn't be like well you know i'm just going to walk the other way slowly right you, what do you do you you you're, you're not going to be careful around the murderous psychopath yeah i'll watch out for that No, what are you going to do? You're going to run. You're going to run as fast and as hard as possible to a place of safety. And that is what Paul is calling us to do with sin and temptation. I mean, Solomon says this in Proverbs 6, in verse 27, he says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? I mean, the obvious answer is, of course he can't. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. I mean, obviously, Jesus is speaking in a figurative sense there. He's not talking about physically doing those things. But the point he's making is clear, flee from sin, take everything all necessary in immediate decisive action to separate yourself from sin in your heart and in your life. I remember uh, in the very beginning uh, narrative of Genesis, in chapter 4, verse 7, God tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. So sin's desire is to, to some degree, the flesh is to have mastery over our hearts. It is, our flesh is really the murderous psychopath committed to your destruction. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This command then to flee idolatry is is only able to be obeyed because God is our Father, Christ is our mediator, and the Spirit is our helper. This is not meant to be a word of discouragement for them. It's meant to be a word of encouragement. It's meant to be an encouragement to us. As a child of the king, you and I can flee idolatry. As a child of the king, you can flee a spirit of anger. As a child of Christ, you can flee and put pride to death. Selfishness can be put to death, lust and anxiety and fill in the blank, all those sinful desires can be put to death. But as one commentator said, the way out of those temptations is for those who seek it, not for those, like some of the Corinthians, who are looking for a way into it. In fact, if you're looking for a way into sin or you're trying to figure out how can I get as close to the edge without falling off, that's a problem you need to question where your allegiance truly rests. Paul wants to and does believe the best in them, though. And so he writes them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this command is given to flee idolatry, but it's, it's, it's pillowed in familial language. My dearly beloved brothers and sisters, flee from idolatry, So that is the command. That leads into the second point, which is the consideration. He wants them to stop and think about two more examples in verses 15 to 18. They took a lot of pride. The Corinthians took a lot of pride in their um, wisdom. And while earlier in the, the letter, in chapter 4, he actually um, is somewhat sarcastic in his criticism of their wisdom. But here... In chapter, uh, in verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men, judge what I say. When he says that, I think that's a genuine call for them to, like, you're smart people. You, I don't think he's mocking them. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's sarcastic. I think he is genuinely appealing to their common sense. He doesn't mean judge what I'm about to say is right or wrong. He's urging them to consider what he's going to say and to acknowledge that he's right, (laughs) that he's speaking the truth. This is not a call for them to sort of like weigh it in the balance. He's saying, listen, what I'm about to tell you, take it to heart. You can think of verses 16 to 18 as an appeal to common sense. It's an appeal to common sense that fellowship with Christ and faithfulness to Christ are incompatible with idolatry. This is obvious. And to make his point, he urges them to look to stop and take notice, to consider what they already already know about the Lord's table and from the Old Testament scriptures in their um, historical account of their wilderness wanderings. So first he says, look at the Lord's table. look at the Lord's table. He uses a pair of rhetorical questions in verse 16 to urge them to consider what the Lord's table signifies about their relationship with God in Christ. Verse 16, he says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? The Lord's table, we know it, we understand it, is, a, is, is the setup and ordained by Christ for the regular practice of the disciples of his church. It goes without saying that it's meant to be a blessing to the church. And that's why Paul refers to it as the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving, which we bless. And and there's a lot of rich imagery to Jewish culture that kind of lies behind these verses, not just the Lord's table. In a typical Jewish meal, a blessing was given both before the meal and at the conclusion of the meal. Uh, the main part was opened with a blessing usually given by the head of the household in which they um, would uh, take a piece of bread in hand and the others would confirm that with an amen at the end. And after that, the head of the house would distribute the break the bread and distribute it because that was a common item at every meal with all those who were sitting at the table with them. And of course, there was no question that the bread was um, just bread and it wasn't transforming into something different when they prayed and thank God for it. No, it's, it was meant to praise God for his provision, for his sovereign control of all the goods of the earth. And at the conclusion of the meal, there was a common thanksgiving or praise given for the food. Usually that head of household would extend that that privilege to a guest, to a guest at the table, to offer this word of blessing. And after that, they would say, "Let this, let us pronounce this blessing. And the guest would take a cup, usually of Wine, and, and then they would, with their eyes on it, pronounce a word of benediction over the meal, thanking God for it. And so that's the picture that, that is gathered up in the Lord's table. We see that obviously in the upper room. We see that the final Passover, which we know is the first Lord's table, he, Paul refers to it as the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving. It was that cup that Jesus blessed in the upper room and interpreted and as signifying the new covenant in his blood. And from that point on, the early church took that language and appropriated it to the cup at the Lord's table. Similarly, the bread that we break that he refers to here is referring to that bread that Jesus broke and distributed to his disciples at the last Passover, which he himself interpreted as signifying and representing his body, which is about to be broken on the cross. So, but notice what Paul says, he says, he asks this question, is the, the cup that we bless, he says, is a sh- it, don't you understand it's a sharing in the blood of Christ and the bread that we break is a sharing in the body of Christ? What does he mean by that? And more importantly, why does it matter? Well, it's important to understand what it doesn't mean. Um, it's important to understand that when he says that we share in the blood of Christ, the, he's not saying that the bread or the cup are transubstantiated or turned into the actual blood and body of Christ, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Um, that doesn't happen. That's not what, he, what what he's describing. Nor is it consubstantiated, meaning uh, that the blood, the actual blood and and body of Christ, kind of exists in, around, and under the elements themselves, but not in the elements. That a, that's kind of consistent with Lutheran teaching, which, again, is not biblical. It's not, it's not what he's talking about here. Christ cannot be sacrificed again and again. Uh, Hebrews makes that clear that God, was through Christ, made uh, accepted the offering once to bear the sins of many. In chapter 9, we see that in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews reiterates that for one time he has for all time sanctified those through his offering of himself. We understand that. So it, it, obviously we can't physically consume his body or his blood. That's not what's talk, what this is talking about. So what does he mean by the sharing in the blood of Christ and sharing in the body of Christ? This language of sharing in the body and blood almost certainly refers to our sharing our sharing in and our appropriating the provisions and benefits of the new covenant. He's talking about the new covenant that was ratified when Christ went to the cross, gave up his life as an atonement for sin and was raised from the grave. So when you and I come around the Lord's table as his church, that table becomes a fellowship meal. A fellowship meal where in the presence of Christ, through his spirit, God's people, by faith, look back to that one sufficient atoning sacrifice that Christ made at the cross and realize those benefits for us anew. That's the point. So our participation in the Lord's table, and by that we reaffirm that through Christ's death, that we are all sharers in his life and that we are bound to one another as his spiritual body. So it's not strictly a memorial. There is a real but spiritual fellowship that happens around the Lord's table in his church. Verse 17 makes that clear. He says, "'Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread.'" through the lord's table our common life together in and with christ is celebrated and reaffirmed. And here's why paul calls them and us to consider that in this section because he's kind of setting up something he's going to say at the end. He says this, our common fellowship as god's people bound together to the lord through the benefits of the cross and which which we experience regularly at the lord's table. That Fellowship makes all other fellowship idolatry. Being joined together with Christ makes it impossible for us to join ourselves to any context where the focus rests on some other false god. He's appealing to just common sense. He says, listen, you belong to Christ. You have true spiritual fellowship with him every moment of every day through his spirit and in a unique and corporate sense through the Lord's table. To join yourself, he says, to join yourself to idolatry is a serious forsaking of your fellowship, your common life in Christ. He goes on, he says, look at Israel. Verse 18, look at nation of Israel, or literally Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? Again, the language eat the sacrifices in verse 18 refers to that meal that followed the actual sacrifice under the old covenant, in which the offerer ate portions of the food that was offered. A portion was burned up, and a portion was reserved, and they would eat it as a fellowship meal in the in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. When Paul says they, those offers were sharers in the altar, he means the participants shared in the food on the altar and all of the altar signified. So if an Israelite joined the sacrificial meal in that day, in the Old Covenant, think about this. If an Israelite joined their pagan neighbors in a sacrificial meal to a false god, that would have been a clear act of idolatry. That would have been a failure in their covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. He, he says, listen, stop sacrificing on the high places. Stop sacrificing to the Asherah and the Ba'als. Like how many times do you see that in the Old Testament? It's again and again. It's like clearly it's it's a betrayal of their faithfulness to Yahweh. And Paul says, Look at Israel. Those who ate the food of the sacrifices, they were giving worship to, and they were entering into fellowship with with God for whom the sacrifice sacrifice was made. You have to understand what's happening in those events, in those situations. He says you can't divorce the physical action from its spiritual significance. Again, this is just an appeal to common sense. He says this is obvious. It may not be as obvious to us because we don't live in that world as much anymore, but it was obvious to them. So there is this, there is this call to Consider, Israel, consider the Lord's table, which leads into the third point, the clarification in verse 19 and verse 20, the beginning part of verse 20. He says, by now, you ought to understand that idolatry is not good. You shouldn't be doing this. You you should realize that eating meat sacrificed to an idol is to participate in idolatry, but to suddenly pull back. Now, if they suddenly pull back, wouldn't it seem that this is his anticipating what they would say? Wouldn't it seem like you're saying an idol is like a real thing, which we know is isn't, isn't true? He said it in chapter eight. Paul even acknowledged. He says, "We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no god but one." He says, "I understand that, but if they suddenly stop going, if they stop participating, wouldn't that communicate the wrong message that?" that maybe we're so scared of this idol because it's such a thing that it... And Paul says, no, I won't dispute with you that an idol is nothing, that is no God at all. But I do not agree that an idol and the worship of an idol is something harmless or neutral. And that's what he says in verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. He says, that's not what I'm saying. But I say that the things with the Gentiles... Which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. He says, when people offer sacrifices to a false god, you can't say that they're engaging in some meaningless or morally neutral activity. Right? This is not a matter of Christian freedom. When people sacrifice to idols and offer worship to a false god, they are sacrificing to demons. And Paul is shown both from the Lord's table and from the sacrificial system that he describes under the covenant of Moses that to share food around the worship of God is to establish fellowship with God, that God. But idol worshipers are not entering into fellowship with the true God. That's what makes them idol worshipers. He's saying, since there are no other gods, you have to realize that they are then entering into fellowship with demons. And that is clearly out of bounds, right? He doesn't even have to say it at this point. It's obvious. You have to understand, he said, what is going on in that situation? Which leads to the fourth and final point. We've seen the command. We've seen the consideration. We've seen this clarification in verse 19. Now he brings it all home in verses 20, 21, and 22. This is a call now to singular devotion. He says, I do not want you, Into verse 20, to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Paul says this whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to an idol isn't simply a matter of Christian freedom. It's not a matter of indifference that good and godly people can disagree about. Like, oh yeah, you want to do that? Yeah, it's not really for me. No. He says, this is black and white. This is obvious. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. One excludes the other. It's one or the other. The Lord's table reminds us that the Lord is the host whom we worship and with whom we have fellowship. And by that same reasoning, the table of demons reminds us that the demons are the host. And they're the ones, if we engage in that, whom we're worshiping and with whom we are fellowshipping. So the message is clear. Those who accept the Lord's invitation to his table, to fellowship at his table, cannot in good conscience also accept an invitation to the table of demons and false worship. And if we're really in fellowship with the Lord, we cannot at the same time play around with fellowship with demons. To do so is to provoke the Lord who deserves all our worship and all our devotion and fellowship. He is a jealous God, and he means that in the most righteous sense of that jealousy. He is the one to whom all worship is owed. And that not only is his glory, but it is our joy and benefit. Again, we should heed the warning by God through Moses to Israel in the wilderness. You remember at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 32 and verse 21, Moses says, speaking of Israel, they have made me jealous by what is not God. And they have provoked me to anger with their idols. And they would do that again and again and again throughout their history. Read the Old Testament. It is a failure to recognize that God is God and he alone. That is the problem. And the Corinthians were falling victim to the same mistake. They were in their prideful arrogance in an almost magical view of the, of the elements of the Lord's table. They were seeing those things and thinking they could flirt with pagan practices and not be not be. Burned and not be uh, deal with the consequences of that, and Paul shows them that is that is so theologically naive and deficient. To share in the table of demons is to forsake our fellowship with Christ. To share in the table of demons is a failure in our covenant faithfulness to God and God alone. It's disloyal. It's treacherous. It is utterly foolish to think that we can challenge the Lord over and over and over again in that way and still come out ahead. So what is the takeaway for us? What is the takeaway? There's a handful of things, but I have a couple here in my notes. First, even though we're not under the law of Moses, we are under the law of Christ. And there are certain practices and places that our commitment to Christ therefore, that will essentially be ruled out. Even though the word of God doesn't strictly forbid X or Y, being members of Christ's body uh, makes it quite possible, uh, makes it impossible, excuse me, for us to be involved in idolatrous behavior and practices because in those situations, our fundamental allegiance is tested. So sitting at Christ's table, sharing in his grace and the freedom from sin's penalty and power, does not give you and I license to live however we want. And that's certainly never been the case in Scripture. doesn't ever affirm that. Quite the opposite. It binds us to one another and to Christ in common fellowship. And in that common life, our conduct is to be radically transformed under the law of Christ. That's not just of the letter, but of the Spirit. So our obedience isn't rendered externally only, but externally from an internal perspective of true desire to please the Lord. So we should recognize that we under, are under a higher law. Second, we should remember that by faith, not works, but by faith, we are empowered to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, that's the first and greatest commandment. Every moment of every day, we are faced with a choice. You and I are. Am I going to live for myself or am I going to live for Christ? And those who have become sharers in the new covenant with its primary blessings of forgiveness of sin and the indwelling spirit, something we're reminded of every time we come to the Lord's table, we've been given every opportunity. You and I have been given every opportunity and every grace to glorify God with our lives. And we should view every remaining vestige of sin, which is there. We see it. It's ugly. But we should look at it all as incompatible with who we have become in Christ. This is not who you are anymore in Christ. And so sin should more and more register as alien and foreign to us as something we, we long to put aside to walk in righteousness. That's why Paul says what he says in Romans as he writes to the Roman church. He says, uh, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer a master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And we're partakers of that life by faith. And so he says, So consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, your faculties, as instruments of righteousness to God. Sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but you are under grace. This is the message we need to take away from this. As Paul writes to them, he is calling them back to the standard that they know, that they've gotten away from. They are leaning right on the edge. And Paul says, you need to step back. And we must do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would choose to warn us, to alert us to a, a dangerous Situation, Lord, that's going to look very different for different people in different contexts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take these things to heart, that we would take these things to heart and emboss them in our minds, that we would apply them rightly to our situation. And maybe we feel that pull of temptation to the flesh and those things from the past, and, and maybe we're struggling to live wholeheartedly for you. And we, we still feel like at times our allegiance is, isn't where it needs to be. And Father, we struggle with those things and help us to be reminded that that, that we can fight that fight of faith and we can press on and that you do call us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray, Lord, that our church would be marked out by its singular devotion to Christ and that that passion and that zeal and that commitment to you would spill over into um, souls, one, to the gospel, and for your purposes. We ask this by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.